This episode of Social Jello is brought to you by Blueberry. Check out Blueberry. Check out my show. It's also on Last FM. Check out Last FM if you want to check out my show. And we're also on iTunes. So jump on iTunes if you want to download the podcast. Or you can download all this stuff at www.socialjello.com. Um, last but not least, we're brought to you by the Kobe Fight Network. Fight dates. I am fighting for the JMMA venue pancreation tournament in Osaka, Japan. On May 14th, if you're in Japan, you want to see me fight, check it out. I believe, since I'm an amateur MMA fighter, I believe the amateur sections may be free. It might be like 2,000 yen, depending where you want to sit. I'll be fighting in a cage, trapped. Nowhere to go but forward. So check it out. Um, Also, if you want to train with us, every Sunday, 7 o'clock, OG Sports Center. www.kobe.com dash fighting.net get more information there uh the english follows the japanese you'll see a bunch of japanese but not the english this episode of social jello has stephen rose stephen rose is a microbiologist researcher looking at nanotechnology and anti-aging he has got some really cool shit that he talked about i really hope you enjoy it it was a really good episode um Really cool stuff about anti-aging and what technology is doing. Um, and a little bit about politics. A little, just a tiny bit at the end. But you'll like it. It's a good show. Check it out. This is Social Jello with Angelo. So, Steven. Is it St- it's Steven, right? Correct. How do I pronounce your name? Oh, yeah, Angelo. Jello? Yeah, yeah, Jello. Um, you can call me Jello or Angelo, whichever one's fine. Whichever, whichever you prefer is totally cool. Um, yeah. So, Stephen, I, I was, I, ha, I, I guess, um, you're from New York. Correct. All right. And um, you, uh, I was noticing here that you studied bioengineering. What is it exactly that you do for work? If you don't mind me asking. No, not at all. Um, Up until I was 48, I was in the personal training business. I had a uh, personal training studio on White Plains for 10 years. I've been in that business on and off. done a lot of different things in my life, really. But about three years ago, I decided to change gears and go back to school for bioengineering to reinvent myself. Oh, cool, cool. So you went... Something more challenging. So you were you were a personal trainer, and then you went back to school for bioengineering. Where did you end up going for bio for your when you went back to school? Where did you go? Well, I did my undergraduate work at Oneonta State. I got my master's degree in management systems from Clarkson years ago, and um, you know I decided I looked at a bunch of different programs and worked my way into Harvard. Oh, uh, cool. <laughs> Cool, cool. So, um, what is it that you? So, right now, after you finish your degree, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you got into bioengineering. I'm not quite finished yet. Oh, oh okay. Oh, so you're but still. I am working on a number of different So I'm you're getting near the end. Oh, okay. So you're you're finishing up your 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 program, and you already have a master's. Are you, are you working on a second master's right now, or? 
Yeah, I have a master's in business. This will be a master's in bioengineering and nanotechnology. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm just really getting started on my thesis at this point. Oh, cool. What, what's your thesis on? Well, I'm, I'm working on a number of different projects related to aging. That's my whole shtick. I'm interested in developing anti-aging interventions. What I'm working on in particular <clears throat> is this, this thing called, they're called advanced glycation end products. And what they are in um, simple terms are crosslinks that form between the connective tissues in, of your body and they, they drive inflammation. So they're thought to underpin the development of diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, pretty much any disease you could have. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm working on ways of dealing with glucosapain in particular, which is the most prevalent AGE. Does that make any sense? Probably not. It probably sounds like gibberish, but... So if, if, um, if I understand you correctly... So you're working on um, you're working on anti-aging remedies using nanotechnology. Is that well? I you know when I got interested in the world of anti-aging medicine or biogerontology, it goes by a lot of different names. People, it's a multidisciplinary effort, really. Oh. You said I it's... thought about what type of process would be best for me, and I determined that um, nanotechnology would be very useful. And so I went in that direction. So, oh, cool. Yeah, it's very actually. The nanotechnology is really about, you know, uh, exploring the universe on the nano scale. You know, everything in our our cells is built on the nano scale. It's a bunch of machines, motors, and conveyor belts, and all sorts of things, just like machines we have, you know in our world, except they're on the nanoscale. And nanotechnology is about developing those things, re-engineering them from nature, and, uh, you know, learning how to use the tools to manipulate those things also. And it, it's just, it's interesting because it's a, a universe with a completely different set of rules. And you can do some pretty amazing things. So I'm guessing in the middle of all that, you're also going, you said it's a multidisciplinary field. Um, anti-aging and bioengineering, specifically nanotechnology. So you're probably getting into, uh, I don't know, if I'm, micro microbiology as well, right? Microbiology is, is something that's connected to it. Uh, genetics is a very big part of it. Uh, you know, developmental biology, when you're talking about stem cells, uh, a lot of it is really about what's called biomimicry. I mean, all the answers are actually kind of out there already. That's my theory anyways. Nature has constructed all kinds of incredible machinery that we couldn't even really appreciate until the modern era, where now we have the tools to kind of look at what's going on in the nanoscale and, and take things apart and put them together. Just like a kid, you know, like takes a part motor and puts it together and, and learns how mechanics operate. And the same thing is kind of going on in nanotechnology. can do that. And so, you know... It's enabled us to develop all kinds of interesting things. And but in terms of medicine, where it's really um, making the biggest difference is in the development of targeted drug delivery. So that means, like, if someone's diagnosed with a disease, right, the disease is in one part of the body. Let's say it's cancer, it's a tumor. In the past, 
you might get uh, chemotherapy. That drug or chemical that's administered to you goes to every single cell in your body. It has toxic effects. It makes you really sick. Now we can use nanotechnology to deliver the drugs only, for the most part, to the places where they need to go. So instead of poisoning a person from head to toe, you really just target a specific area. So you have much less side effects, you use less drugs, and you have a better outcome. Uh, so that's, that's one really good example of you know, how nanotechnology is helping us now. And... Um... So I, I know, like when I was, I used, to, I had a, uh, a, an argument once with one of my friends that he told me that uh, he was telling me that in science, a lot of the, a lot of the books, and when you're looking at a lot of the schematics, that the pictures of microbiology are just pictures that we actually don't have the technology to see things at such a scale so small. Um, but what you're saying is now we actually do. So I guess my question to you is how small are we talking? Like the size of a cell, the size of an atom, or are we going? We're getting, um, you know, we're down to the atomic level. I mean, you can see atoms arranged in a, you know, on a surface. You can actually push atoms around using uh, what's called atomic force microscopy. Of course, the images you see are not exactly the atoms themselves, but it, it, it uses some very sophisticated algorithms and mathematics to take shadows, sort of, and get better resolution out of them, create an image that your mind digests. But I think it's reasonable to say that what you're looking at is sort of what's there, because if you don't accept that as true, then you, can, you have to step back to the argument that, you know, is anything we see with our eyes, hear with our ears, what we're really seeing and hearing anyways. There's always this processing that goes on between what's out there and what our brain, you know, sees, so to speak. So I think it's fair to say we're, we're getting down to the atomic level now. And you can actually push atoms around and arrange atoms in different patterns and so forth. Um, that's not typically how things are done. A lot of things on the nanoscale work by a concept called self-assembly. Like things literally put themselves together if you set up the circumstances correctly. For example, like the cell membrane. You know you know what cell membranes are in a cell. They're made out of fat. And if you take oil droplets and you put them, you know, you kind of explode them into water, they'll form vesicles that look like cells. And they just do that naturally. It's a function of the laws of the universe, physics, self-assembly. It's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, human beings are self-assembled. It's a fantastic concept to try and wrap your head around. That's really cool. No, I mean, like, um, yeah, I'm, 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 while I'm talking to you, I'm writing all these notes down because after the show, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, like, a, a quick page together so that some of my listeners, if they're interested in learning more about this, they can, they can look into it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm really, I'm just curious because like I, I studied, um, I, I come from a psychology major, but um, within my studies, I also had to study uh, physiology a lot as well as a little bit of microbiology. So I, I can kind of keep up with what you're talking about. I, in a general sense, I understand what you're, what you're saying. Um, 
And I guess um, right now, what you're saying, if I understand, you know, if, if if I'm getting you, if I'm if I'm keeping up with you here, <laughs> what you're talking about is being able to use nanotechnology to deliver medication to specific parts of the body. Because right now, like for example, if someone gets cancer, um, we tend to kind of give uh, during chemotherapy the chemo hits not just the area that's affected, but other areas as well, which is why people get so sick. Like that's why they get radioactive poisoning and all that other stuff. Um, but thanks to, thanks to nanotechnology. Uh, it's 20 years now. It's, it's yeah. shifting to much more focused treatments because every cell type has a unique signature on its surface. It has different surface ligands that make it unique. And you can take advantage of that by creating nanoparticles that will float around like a, kind of like a, a key fits only one lock. They float around until they find a receptor they can match to and then they stick to it. And then through some additional engineering, you can coax the cell into taking what's in that nanoparticle and bringing it into the cell. That's called the Trojan horse approach in uh, some circles. When they first came out, people called it the Trojan horse. Because basically what you'd do if you're attacking a cancer cell, for instance, you would take your nanoparticle, you'd put uh, receptors on it so that when it encountered a cancer cell in particular, the cancer cell would pull it inside, and then when it got inside, it would release its contents or payload, and that would be the destructive chemical, um, and which would then it destroy the inside of that cell, but not destroy the cells around it. Or it would only destroy cells in that area but not throughout the entire body. Like, that's kind of the, the uh, bare-bones picture of how targeted drug delivery works. Oh, that's really cool. So, in your field, like you, you mentioned earlier, you're working specifically for your thesis on anti-aging. And I guess um, w one of my questions for you is, like, right now, humans already live to an average age of, what, 80, 85? So... I thought it was more like 76 in the United States. I know it's a little bit older in some places. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, if we yeah if we look at the yeah in the United States it's about 76. Of course, looking at different parts of the world, they'll have shorter lifespans. Um, but in general, we shorter. Like generally speaking, um, humans are definitely living longer than they did uh, pre-industrial area, right? Like before the 1900s. Um, modern medicine really kind of extended life. How much more do you think life can be extended because of nanotechnology? Well, I think I look at aging. First of all, I don't look at age. I look at aging differently than most people. Like, you know, I have like 20 or 30 or 50 different words for snow. In the same way, when most people think of aging, they just think, Aging is getting older. When I think of aging, I think of seven or eight distinct biological processes that cause damage to the body over time, all of which are, you know, they can be boiled down to relatively simple concepts. For example, in the case of uh, glucosapine, which is what I told you I was working on in the beginning of our conversation, that's molecular crosslinks. Molecular crosslinks form over time in the body. It's a chemical process. It represents a, uh, you know, it stems from the fact that we're a big bag of a 
of chemicals, ongoing chemical reactions, um, and we're still evolving. And so you get these wayward reactions happening that aren't really consistent with the long-term survival of the organism. And over time, they wreak havoc. But when you look at it from a chemistry standpoint, nothing seems beyond solvable. So I think it's possible that human lifespan could be extended indefinitely. I don't see that happening in the next 10 years or anything, but um, it's definitely possible. It's just that everyone in our, in our entire history has died so far. So, um, you know, it's hard to, to get past that. That's kind of a dark cloud hanging over us. And then there are, of course, all the ethical arguments that people will bring to the table, you know. But... Um, strictly from a, a chemist, biochemist point of view, I think it's it's completely possible to extend life indefinitely. I think in our lifetimes, we'll probably see another 20 or 30 years, maybe more added. Oh, wow. And then you said there was there's ethical concerns behind that. So like where you're, if I'm catching, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, within nanotechnology, anti-aging and bioengineering, um, there's definitely this thought that immortality may be possible? Is that, that I, I understand? Am I oversimplifying yeah. it? I mean, you can still get run over by a truck or <laughs> electrocuted, but in any number of other ways. Uh, but, you know, and, and there are species that are essentially immortal already. Like there are certain species of jellyfish. The only reason they disappear is because they get killed or they're the subject of predation. They don't just die. In fact, some jellyfish species actually have this incredible ability to go backward in time. They can return to an embryonic state, like the Benjamin Button. Yeah, I remember I was I was listening to a podcast on big picture science about that, and um, and they were saying that there was there was there was two types of jellyfish that were mentioned, um, and the one that you're talking about, there was one that went back to it. It wasn't a jellyfish. One was a jellyfish, one wasn't. But either way, the one that you're talking about, yeah, it would it would go to its full adult life span and then it would go into like this reverse aging process where it ended up um it, it would become back it would go back to infancy and then it would just continue this cycle and the only reason it would stop would be like you said if it if it if it they got eaten by something or, or killed. But as far as like the natural aging process, and um, I believe the the word they're using here is, oh boy, here we go. Turidopsis dorni is what I'm reading here for the, uh, for the, uh, the scientific term. As far as a scientific classification, but if if you Google immortal jellyfish, that's that's what that's what layman's terms is calling it, is is the immortal jellyfish, okay. and I'm gonna put that in my notes so people can check it out too because that's really that's really interesting work that uh, that scientists have been working on. There's another there's another fish that they were looking at that they were saying can can in it it can't regrow an arm but it can grow an arm in a like it can change its shape and regenerate um beyond like we we always talk about how lizards can regrow their tail but they were talking about how right. this 
this uh, starfish can can regenerate organs and other parts uh, based on like it's with with it's I guess it's not made it's it has to do something with stem cells and the way it generates them, but it can regenerate generate parts of its body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a very complicated signaling um, processes that uh, reptiles have that enable them to completely regenerate limbs in some instances. A really interesting experiment, I thought it was interesting anyways, that I came across a few years ago was frogs don't have that same ability because they're just, they kind of took a different turn on the evolutionary tree. But they're close enough so that they were able to basically engage the same process in frogs that you see in lizards where you could sever the limb and get it to grow back completely. And, of course, you know, there's a whole collective of people um, who make up that particular niche in science who are working on regenerating organs by trying to figure out how those processes work and getting them to work in human beings, you know, or getting improvements for human beings when, say, for example, you get your finger chopped off or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and that- That's like, you know, Stem cell studies and developmental biology. Okay. Yeah, because that's that's what I was that's what I was seeing. And then the starfish one was um, certain types of starfish. They can um, they can they can they can actually house most of their vital organs in their arms. And some of them require a central body to enact the regeneration. But a few species can actually grow an entirely new. Sea star from a portion of a severed limb, like so, right. So that exactly. that's what, yeah. do that also. What, 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 planaria to like, I think they cut them into almost two hundred eighty pieces, and every single piece will grow back into a complete organism. It's phenomenal. Wow, it's what, scary. What, what's that called? I'm sorry. Can you say that one more time? Uh, planaria. 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 Oh wow. Yeah. That's really cool. It's a type of worm, a flatworm. They use them in biological studies a lot because they're very easy to work with and, you know, they grow and reproduce rapidly. And they have a relatively simple genetic program. So, you know, you can figure out things about human beings sometimes from little organisms like that. Oh, the planaria flatworm. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting this down too in the notes. And again, um, planaria. So, so thanks to these these studies, um, we're getting closer to being able to solve the mystery of aging. If I'm, or if I'm not mistaken, or cell degeneration is that? If I think I'm, that's not that might not be a real word, but um, the idea that our cells, because I mean, I, I, when I looked at some, when I've heard some other podcasts, they explained that essentially our body. Um, continues to maintain itself, stay healthy, cell regeneration takes place, but it starts to decay and regress around um, as we get older. But you're saying that thanks yeah. to thanks to nanotechnology, we can kind of we can kind of stop this process. And some people in the, in the field of anti aging and bioengineering feel that this process can be stopped altogether. Gray is a great, um, he is kind of the spokesperson for the anti-aging movement. And also uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's actually the director of engineering for Google. He's, it's not his first love, but he's such a brilliant guy. He's a modern day, you know, Da Vinci. 
And you said he Jake. He's written a lot on this subject. His name was Jake. Uh, Lake, Hurst, Lake Hurstwell. Lake Hurstwell. Lake Hurstwell and Aubrey de Grey. Oh, okay. In fact, those are the two guys. I saw them do a presentation on the TED channel, and they actually, they're the ones who kind of like got the wheels turning in my head that I should go back to school and pursue this. They really kind of inspired me. Oh, cool. And that's kind of how I got back on this trail. Wow. If you don't mind, would you would you mind send me those, sending me those names a little later, and I'll, I'll put those in the notes as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Cool, cool. I give you way, probably way more information as you want. No, actually, I, I – I, this is – no, when I, when, I, when I asked you to be on the show um, – uh-huh. I uh, I was really interested in your background, and normally, like I told you before we even got started, I I have a, an idea of what I'll have my episode be about, but um, I I I like to really get to know my guests, know what they're into. Um, I I the reason I call it social jello with Angelo is because I, I go over several topics, and science is something that I'm very I've always been very interested in. Obviously, um, you know I have a I have a master's in psychology and. Um, science is a big part of the scientific method is a big part of psychology as well. So I'm always open to have uh, an array of topics. So that's totally cool. Um, I think uh, I think this is I think rather than just jumping into like some people like to do their shows and I don't know. I guess I like to have my show be organic and be real conversations with people rather than just these, uh, I don't know, I guess on television when you see an interview, they're just kind of like, this is the topic and we're going to talk about this and there's a director and a producer. And I think a lot of just basic human interaction gets lost in that process and I try to avoid that on my show. So yeah, like I was saying, um, you know, I, I think it's really cool. Um, what, the work that you're doing is is definitely is definitely really progressive as far as... Um, trying to push science to its limits and, and using the technology we have now. Um, so like, yeah, I originally, when I, when I, when I contacted you on the show, um, I originally hit you up on Facebook and I added you a while back, uh, because I've, I've, um, I'm constantly building my network to try to get meet people from different perspectives. And, um, I'm always if you've seen the Jello Ferrer Facebook, I'm always posting questions and discussion points. And um great questions. Oh thanks. <laughs> when it, it's funny project yourself as just a a good human being with good questions. I don't know. It's it's um almost hard to find people who aren't on a rant of some form or another, you don't come off that way. You know, you kind of, you, you have an approach to people that just, it doesn't put anybody on edge. I think it, I mean, I can only speak for myself, my own personal reaction to what I've seen on your Facebook page, but you know, it's just very, uh, it's, it's a, it's a forum where people can just kind of be themselves and they can be very different from one another. And it's not really an issue and it doesn't get out of control. Or at least I haven't experienced that yet. Yeah, I try. I tried to. Um, and it's funny that that you mentioned that when I first opened this Facebook page, it was for ranting, and uh, and for the first like maybe the first year that I opened it, I would just rant and rave on this thing, and I, I realized in my first year of ranting and raving that um, first of all, 
I, 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 I would only attract other people that agreed with it. And then the people that didn't agree with it, I would just get a quick message that said, bye, Felicia, or whatever, and they'd delete me. So I realized two things in my rants. First of all, I was pleading to emotion, which, um, which I try not to do. Uh, and I was also pleading to, um, to, my own, to my own soapbox, if you will. And, I, and after I caught myself a few times, especially after the last election doing this, when I first started, I thought I was being different. And that's why I was ranting and raving. Because I, I was ranting and raving about Trump before Trump was even running for president. Because I've, I've not liked the dude for a long time. But once he became president, I don't know, I guess for me, I've always been kind of, I've always been trying to be, I don't know, I've, I've always liked to be, I don't know if I try to be different or if I just end up coming off that way, but I've always been kind of an outlier when things happen. And I'm always kind of astray from anything mainstream. Like whenever I feel like something is becoming mainstream, I get turned off by that. Um, I'm this way with music. I'm this way with, with uh, just a lot of things in general. So when I when I opened the Facebook when when Trump became president and a lot of people started just the visceral reactions I started realizing that my wave of thought that I thought was actually uh, underground or not so popular suddenly be, ended up becoming this mainstream ideology and I saw people that that I didn't even um, really relate to that had the same thought process. And that's when I really took a step back and started thinking about what I was posting on this Facebook page, how I was coming off, um, and what I really wanted to do. And that's, I think by the time you came along on this Facebook page, I already kind of developed this new strategy of rather than really putting out my strong opinion on a subject, I would rather just post a question and see what people think. And then kind of find out, try to find out why they think that way. Because I've really come to this conclusion that cognitive dissonance is going to set itself in. Even for me, I studied psychology and still I'm not, I'm not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not free of cognitive dissonance. Just because I know what it is doesn't make me exempt from it. So, and for my listeners that maybe not understand what cognitive dissonance is, simplified you have the way you see the world, you have your beliefs, and it shapes your future beliefs and what you think. Um, so if you already have a certain thought process, for example, an identity that you're a liberal or you're a conservative, you're already going to follow a certain thought process with that. And when new information comes in, even if it's a fact, you will reject it because of your beliefs and ideologies. Even if it's true, you'll, 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 you'll twist it around to um to to not fit whatever you however you see the world, um, and because yeah, it's a of that, process to watch if you can step outside of it long enough to be a witness to it rather than be at the center of it. Yeah, and that's and, why uh, I, when I was when I was a graduate student in um, in marketing, we studied this thing called the Fishbein model. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. I'm sure it was taken from cognitive psychology, but um, you know where we talk about latitudes of acceptance and rejection when messages are delivered to people as part of the consumer behavior model of thinking. You know, it's, it's such a crazy thing. But it's as if, uh, you know, once you, you develop your ideas to a certain extent, it becomes difficult to escape the tendency to want to keep 
or accept anything that's inconsistent with your worldview, maybe because of the anxiety that it creates or something else along those lines. But, you know, once you kind of get your worldview, dealing with any type of challenge to it, most people will tend to dismiss the ideas that don't fit and, you know, hold on to the ones that do to reinforce their existing belief system. And it's very uncomfortable when someone starts to shake that up for you. Yeah. And I think that's where, um, I think what I, what I've been trying to, um, understand is when I would, when I, cause I have friends that are both conservative and, um, and liberal. And what I was, when I was, what I was really trying to understand is from my upbringing, um, coming where I came from, it was really easy for me to become a liberal because of where I lived. But as I got older, I, I started trying to figure out, well, my conservative friends that say things like, um, like all liberals are crazy. That was one of the, that was one of the things that they would say. Liberals are crazy. And I wanted to see like, well, well, where I, I, uh, I know I'm obviously I want to find out why they feel that way. And I, I, I talked to him. I'd ask him, well, why do you feel that way? Well, you know, liberals are always ranting and raving about ABC topic. They're always angry. And um, so when I started switching my Facebook page and asking these questions, it was interesting because I started finding the kind of liberals that my conservative friends would tell me about um, that would not listen to any type of reason immediately attack someone um like i have a i have a friend who on on my facebook page that um that's a very you know very far left liberal and anytime anytime they see a post that they feel is diverting from the issue they'll jump on and start accusing people of uh, of being complacent um I, I once posted – I forgot what I posted. I think I posted a video of, of – because I, I do a lot of projects on YouTube and one of them is a children's ESL channel. And I, I posted one of my videos for, for, for that. It was a video about ESL and uh, of, a, of a puppet singing uh, a color song. And uh, and this person jumped on, and they were just like, "Oh, you know, you're distract, you're you're being distracted from the point, and and something." And went on some really far off rant about politics on a, on a post that had nothing to do with politics, and um, you know, and, and I kind of started seeing how and where and why some of my conservative friends were really put off by by people that said that they were liberals, and that's. And so I can kind of see from that, I started trying to think of ways to try to get other people to talk about why they see the world the way they do, um, mostly because I'm, I've become kind of convinced that it's – that I – as one – as a person, as an individual, I cannot change how someone else thinks. That's not possible. Um, maybe me – for me, maybe some people have maybe greater – more ambition than I do, but, but my um, – my thought process is that no matter what I say, even if I wanted to, I can't change how someone views the world. So if I disagree with someone, the most I can do is get them to understand how I see things. But I, I don't have – I have a really – I don't know if it's pessimistic, but I don't believe that I can change someone's viewpoint on – especially when it comes to social issues. I don't think I have that ability. Some people maybe feel they do. But I think people kind of just they look at what's going on, they stack up um, 
an amount of information and they make their own decision from there. And that's why I asked you to be on the show because you, you were mentioning that, that you voted for, for Trump and you seem to be a very intelligent, articulate person. And I think one of the stereotypes that are out there is that everyone who voted for Trump was was uh, there was a, 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 the most the most thing was that they were all from rural areas, uneducated, and um, and the stereotype that they're just uh, a bunch of rednecks and that they're all racists. And I and I'll, I'll openly admit that I I fell into that stereotype when all this mess started. But um, I've been trying to step back and and really realize that that's not really the case. And you're one of those people that I noticed was out there. So I guess what and my question to you, how did when when all this was happening politically, what was going on um, for your thought process? That's a big question. I'm not sure where to uh, what angle to address it from. All right. I guess we'll start with um, during during the election when you had the two choices between between Hillary and Trump. Um, what were you thinking? Like um, like what were you thinking about the candidates? What, what how are they coming off to you? Okay. Um, well, let's see. Just a kind of off the cuff impressions at the early stages. I thought Bernie Sanders was the most honest, most uh, most uh, honest and genuine um, individual out there. I thought Hillary Clinton was the most seasoned. And one of the things that appealed to me about Trump uh, from the beginning, and uh, the same thing appealed to me many many years ago when uh, Ross Perot ran for office, was the idea of bringing an outsider in someone who is not owned by interest groups. And I think that's a huge problem that we have in Washington. I mean, on both sides of the fence, Democratic and Republican, you know, the way people finance their campaigns is by taking donations from large corporations and special interests. And there's no free lunch. So when you accept these donations, it's a given that, you know, you're going to have to make certain concessions. And I think that's where the process begins. The process of degeneration begins for politicians on some level. Because they can't fully serve the American public and do that very well at the same time. Not to suggest that the corporate agenda is always in opposition to the people's agenda, but... You know, there are issues, certainly, and it would be, I thought it would be, uh, it caught my interest because I like the idea of a businessman with a businessman's perspective who wasn't owned by special interests, you know, getting to the helm of, uh, you know, getting to the presidency. Um, a lot of the issues that I think other people consider to be larger issues, I didn't consider to be as significant also. That's being kind of vague for the moment, but um, that's kind of a, you know, quick pan of the initial political uh, landscape as I saw it near the beginning of the election. Yeah, and then, like, what I what I was noticing was, um, like, it's funny that you, you talk about the special interest groups. 
um, because I was just talking, I was teaching, uh, I was teaching a student, a Japanese student of mine who's, who had to, she has to take this test and she has to know about American politics. And one of the questions on the tests has her read a passage about, about laws, about special, in- specifically, uh, lobbyists and, um, and laws for that. And, 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 um, it was really interesting because some of the stuff I didn't, I, I had an idea about, but I really didn't know how far it went. But essentially, she had to read what lobbying was, how long special interest groups were around, how, how it was originally inspired for, for people to have grassroots movements and have people come in that maybe had, inter- like had, had the people in mind the reason they were trying to get influence was, was to help minorities, people that didn't have a voice in Congress, can maybe get together and petition to have their voices heard. Um, but eventually, as, you know, and as, as the political system evolved, it became more of, a, of money and corporations. And it's funny because in the passage it said that it's illegal to bribe. Um, you know, bribing is illegal. However... That's why special institutes, they can't give money to a candidate, to a person, to a politician, but they can give money to his campaign and gain influence. So it was a weird gray area where they said, well, it's illegal, but we're kind of doing it anyway. And then it was even more interesting because as the passage went on, this was for a test, so it's not, it's not saying for or against. This is in Japan, right? They're translating everything into English. And what it said was um, there's only been two laws passed. Um, one was like in the 1950s and the other one was a little later in the 1960s, 1970s, but both laws, the first law just kind of stated that you had to state which, which special interest groups donated to you. And and then the second law that passed really just said you had, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. And then the other law just... Breaking every once in a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, so far you're 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 pretty clear on my end. Um, but the second the second law that was passed pretty much just monitored how much money was being given. But nowhere in the middle of any of these two laws, only the two that were passed, did it mention about how the FEC regulations like they don't really it didn't say how they were gonna stop it. That, that 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 was the scary part. Like when I was looking at it, was they were they weren't really looking at a, at a way to stop this system. They they admitted that oh yeah, it's it's not a good system. It 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 opens itself up to a lot of problems as far as uh, corporations and groups of people being able to to control a candidate. But it never it never really talked about what law was being passed to to stop it in the future. Um, and what, what it came down to for me was after seeing that, I, I kind of became even more disenfranchised in the idea that, well, what you're pretty much saying is like, why would the people that are benefiting from the certain circ from the, from the, why would the people that are benefiting from the current system change the system? Uh, that's, I, I, ha- I have to put myself in their shoes. I'm making money. I'm, I'm now looking at this more from a business perspective. I'm making money by taking money from a special interest group. Why would I pass a law that would limit that? Because that would eventually make me like I make less money, and um, and and there, there's even though I might say I'm going to work for the greater good, there's always going to be someone who's who's going to be out there for their own personal interests. In fact, most people are. So why 
why would that system be changed? You know, and that's why I kind of I kind of stepped back and realized that I, I don't know. I guess I kind of I already didn't have much faith in the system to begin with. But that was that's really interesting. So so you were saying that you felt that at that time because Trump was coming out as an individual candidate, he wasn't being supported by that many special interest groups. So there was a few, I think. But I, when I looked it up online last time, it was like ten percent. Um, when you compare like the super PACs that Hillary Clinton had and, um, yeah, there, and I, again, I totally agree with you. Sanders, Bernie Sanders was definitely one of the most grassroots movement politicians on the, on the roster. Um, watching out here from Japan and the very little media attention he got made me realize how much control of the media the U.S. has to the point that Bernie Sanders wasn't even mentioned as a running candidate until the very end. Right. Like he was out here in Japan, they didn't even. I would talk about Bernie Sanders. You know, Japanese people would walk up to me um, before the primary election and ask me, "Oh, so who do you think is going to win the election, Trump or Hillary?" And I'm like, "Well, uh, right now we're still looking at, and I think Bernie Sanders is a great candidate." They're like, who's Bernie Sanders? No one knew who he was. He might as well have been a a green party runner because like no one knew who Bernie Sanders was. It was, it, it wasn't until the very end in Japan that people were like, Oh, there's this old guy. And so that, that's what they called him. Ojisan. They're like, Oh, there's this old grandpa dude who's like running against Hillary. And then no one even knew. And by the time they even portrayed it, they were just like, Oh yeah, there's like this grandpa dude who's losing to Hillary and Hillary's going to win. And it was really kind of strange um, seeing that from out here. So how do you feel now, now that he's president and, and things are running? Do you feel that things are changing? Are, are you, how, how do you feel about how, how the government's being ran at this point? Well, there's a lot to say in that question. I would say, like Obama, he's really a battle. Maybe it's just part of the changing times, but I don't really feel like, and you could argue that, you know, he asked for it, but it's very difficult for him. It's very fortunate that he has a Republican uh, Congress and Senate to work with. Um, but, you know, public opinion of Donald Trump is very negative, and that just makes it pretty much, you know, uh, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, about how when you get an idea in your head about a person or thing, you tend to selectively process information going forward that supports your initial idea. So if you start out thinking Donald Trump is a scumbag and a racist, you're going to see everything he does from that point forward through that lens. And it's going to be very difficult for him, regardless of what he does, to ever get past that. And that's, you know, he really pulled a double-edged sword when he, he was able to effectively manipulate the media, really, in a very savvy way to uh, gain publicity that helped get him into the White House. But on the back side of that now, he has to contend with, you know, uh, some very hostile public opinion. And uh, like I said, people will view everything he does through uh, in negative terms for the most part. It's going to be very hard for him to score any points of the American public for a while, if ever. Yeah, no. And I mean, like... So how do I... Mm -hmm. Oh, so, I'm sorry, you were saying? How I... That's okay. Uh, how I feel about what he's doing 
personally is a little bit different. I mean, I'm not definitely not as down on Donald Trump as the average person. I haven't abandoned Donald Trump. I haven't taken a position. I made a big mistake by voting for him. Um, some of the things that he really uh, was that were, were said about Donald Trump throughout his campaign, and this is an example of something I didn't see as as big of a deal as other people, is people would say, well. The guy doesn't really have much of a plan. You know, it seems like he wants to do anything by the seat of his pants. You know, and my thought about that was candidates who seem to have a plan don't really have that much of a plan either. And I think the nature of political business is such that a lot of the problems you're going to face, you can have a general strategy or an outlook to guide you through them, but having like a 10-step plan isn't necessarily practical or realistic. So, you know, I think what's most important is the perspective that a person brings to the job. And I saw Donald Trump as an individual who really valued freedom. And, you know, that opens the door to a whole new wave of conversation. Well, what do you mean freedom for what, freedom for who? But, you know, um, in essence, I saw him as someone who espoused conservative uh, values in general which I was in support of. And also, a way that I look at, it's hard in this modern age not to attach too much energy and significance to the presidential candidates themselves. It's easy to forget they're one player in a larger game. And there's a lot of other people involved, and you have to take that into consideration also. So, for example, this idea of Trump being like, you know, the next Hitler, to me, as it seems like an absurd characterization that's not really practical in our political system at this time. Yeah, no, I um, think... So I, I stay away from demonizing him in that way. Yeah, but I mean... At the same time, I didn't uh, elevate him to the status of, you know, Superman either. Yeah, it makes sense. And, like, right now, an open disclosure, like, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says... Um, it's like the Ghostbusters shirt with the I'm not afraid of no ghost and it's got Donald Trump on it. <laughs> but um so like my my standpoint is like the idea of turning Trump into this demagogue it, even though I I can't stand the guy and I I couldn't stand him before. It had nothing to do with him running for president. I just didn't like his character from before he started running. Um I didn't like him when he tried to run for mayor a long time ago for New York. I didn't like his business practices in New York. So it, it didn't have to do so much with him as a president, but him as an individual. Um, but at the same time, I don't – I don't. people feel like they, they've been calling him a Nazi or they say that people that like him are Nazis. And that's where I have to take a step back and say, yo, like you do know what a Nazi is, right? Because like where I grew up, we had neo-Nazi groups, neo-Nazi gangs. Um Real Nazis, modern day Nazis. Um, and I can tell you 100% that although some of the things he says ideologically sound like white supremacist ideas, um, there's a big difference between someone who maybe has statements that coincide with white supremacist ideology and actual white supremacists. There's a big difference between these two things. Um, uh, one of them being the way they put themselves out there, the other one being um, just the blatant violence. Like, neo-Nazis are not afraid to use violence to, 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 to put across their views. Um, and, they, and they won't hesitate 
to jump to conclusions from from their white supremacist viewpoint. And there is a difference between that and someone who maybe um, sees sees the world in a different view um, as a coming from a different race that may sound like it resonates or sounds similar to for people that studied things like white privilege and and sociology there's some things that certain folks say that that can kind of sound like they're parts of the system of a white supremacist ideology but i think some people have to separate from a psychology and a sociology standpoint which i have a degree in both i have a degree in sociology and psychology um i think people need to separate this idea of white supremacist ideology and white supremacists because people that identify as white supremacists are like uh like kkk groups and neo-nazis are a completely different brand of people and when we start demonizing people calling them nazis calling them white supremacists calling them members of the kkk when they're not um is really unfair to, to say the least I would, I would agree with that statement. But um, you know what? Right now we're about to get to the end of our show here. <laughs> and, I, and I know the hour goes by really quick. <laughs> and we did spend half of it talking about microbiology. But you know what, man? Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. And for my listeners, I want to let you know that I'm definitely going to have Stephen come back, talk more about microbiology. And... Um, and if we have another political event come up, um, we'll talk some more, a little more about politics. But I guess if for my listeners out there, I just hope you can kind of get an idea that no, not everyone who voted for Trump is a Nazi or a KKK member um, or a hateful racist person or, or an uneducated person. I hope you can kind of get that from listening to what Stephen talked about as far as microbiology is concerned. Um, you know, these are these are not people that 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 hate the world or that just want to watch it burn i'm not to say not to say that some people aren't but i I think you can find people that want to watch the world burn from all spectrums of the political ideological framework from conservative to liberal so for my listeners i just want you to keep that in mind um please don't demonize people if you really are one of those people that want to create positive dialogue you want to create positive connections keep an open mind when you're talking to people because you never know you might end up agreeing more than you end up disagreeing thanks for being on the show steven um and to my listeners www.socialjello.com i'll catch you all later peace